You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. We've been looking the past couple weeks at prayer. Some of the ways that we should be praying, the ways that scriptures say, maybe we should change how we think about prayer. Like a few weeks ago, we looked at Abraham and his conversation with God about uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham had this great conversation with God, which was a prayer, because when you talk with God, that's prayer. Um, And he said things like, well, what if there's 50 people? What if there's 45 righteous people? What about 30 righteous people? 35, don't strike me dead, God. I'm going to ask another question. What about 20? What about 15? What about 10? Just seriously, God, save some people, right? This was a type of bold and persistent prayer. Abraham wasn't going to give up. He had a heart for the people in those cities. He wanted to see salvation. He boldly and persistently prayed for the lost. So we also should boldly and persistently pray for the lost people in our city and across the world. Last week, we talked about bold, persistent prayer for God's will to be done in our life. And not just that it would be done, but that we would be obedient and willingly do it. Then we looked at Ananias, not Ananias and Sapphira, but Ananias who um, got a vision from God while he was praying and said, go find a man on Straight Street named Paul and pray for him because I've chosen him to be um, a life changer for people. My gospel will be made known through Paul. And Ananias is like, wait a minute, um, God, did you know this man murders Christians? Did you know that like he doesn't like you? Are you aware? I just wasn't sure if you were aware of that because just, that's the guy you've chosen? And so Ananias has this honest conversation with God and then submits to God's will and goes and baptizes Paul in the name of Jesus Christ. And then we all know what happens with Paul. He goes forth and pretty much changes the, uh, the world for Jesus. He boldly and persistently sought God's will for his life. Ananias did, Paul did, we should as well. And those are two types of prayer that are in the Bible. There are other kinds of prayer. You read through the Bible and you see prayers of thanksgiving. And we prayed some of those today. We're thankful for things. People thank their meal for their meal and they thank God for their house and they thank God for salvation. And there's uh, prayers of praise. Lord, you are the greatest. It's just prayers of extolling God's goodness. They're in the Psalms. They're just some beautiful ones there. There's also prayers of deliverance. Lord, my enemies are all around me. Would you deliver me? Hezekiah did one of these things. Are you familiar with this story? Great little king called Hezekiah. Um, The Assyrian army was coming up against him. The leader called Sennacherib, great name there. And he basically had wiped out all of the cities around him, um, around Hezekiah's little city there. And um, he came to Hezekiah and he said, listen, um, I have done away with all of the other cities and all of their little puny gods. You to me are like a bird in a bird cage and I will just come snatch you. Um, and he sent a letter to Hezekiah saying, as such, and talking badly about God. And Hezekiah said, well, hmm, I'm going to take this letter and put it before the altar of God and see what God will do. Here, God, um, would you deliver us because it's your namesake on the line? Well, <clears throat> the story is great. Hezekiah and his city were delivered, and Sennacherib went away in shame. Um, prayers of deliverance. There's also prayers of repentance. You sin, and you ask God to forgive you, Lord. Forgive me for the things that I've done. That's important to do. Prayers of salvation. Lord, I need you. I need you to save me. I can't overcome my own life. I need you to help me. These kinds of prayers. And it goes on and on, the amount of prayers that are in the Bible. One might even say that most of the Bible is just one giant prayer that takes different forms. Um, There's one type of prayer in the Bible 
that most Christians don't pray. Um, you, you, you read it and you go, oh, that's horrible. How could people even conceive saying things like that? This can't possibly be in the Bible. Oh, but it is. Um, and it's an overlooked prayer. Um, and if you've prayed something like it in your life, you might have repented afterwards for praying that kind of prayer. You might have prayed this prayer and then said, oh, Lord, forgive me for praying that prayer. Because this prayer is pretty aggressive. Um, and we're going to read it this morning. Um, and we're not going to feel guilty for it. Uh, it's in Psalm 109, just one of the multiple times this is in Scripture. Now, this is one of my favorites of the um, cursing prayers. Um, so if you would stand with me, we'll uh, stand in honor of God's word this morning. We're going to read Psalm 109, just verses, uh, say, 6 through 15 this morning. A little snapshot here. This is the encouragement you came for this morning, by the way. <clears throat> Appoint a wicked man against him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth as guilty and let his prayer be counted as sin against him. May his days be few and may another man take his office. May his children become fatherless and may his wife become a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food from the ruins they inhabit. May a creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be no one that would extend kindness to him, nor anyone to extend pity to his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is the word of the Lord for you this morning. You may be seated. Boy, have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Lord, wipe out my enemies from the face of the earth. Let their children be fatherless, i.e. kill him, God. Let his wife be a widow. Take him off the face of the planet. Let his business fall to nothing. You know? Let everyone dislike him. Every time he walks into a room, someone points and goes, ugh, and walks out. These are the kinds of prayers that we as Christians don't really pray, right? Because good, God-loving, Jesus-following Christians don't pray things like, Lord, wipe my enemies off the face of the planet. Or do they? You know, there's something that we need to look at in Scripture because um, we should probably pray a prayer similar to this. Not against people, though. Against the enemy. And there's a difference. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, about praying aggressively against the enemy, but not praying aggressively against people who have been taken captive by the enemy. See, um, the psalmist here, he prayed for death and destruction and no heirs and no jobs and no money and no homes and no anything, asking God to basically take care of his enemies for him. And culturally, we say things like, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. We see something tragic happen, and we say, wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. That's probably a very biblical statement. You don't want to wish harm on anyone. But in the Bible, we have this, this little prayer, this little epic in the life of the psalmist, where he says, before God, there is an enemy and justice needs to be taken. There is an enemy, and God, you need to take care of this because I can't take care of this enemy 
for me. He was bold and persistent and quite honest in how he thought God should take care of the enemy. But how does this line up with Jesus? Because if you read in the New Testament, Jesus says we should pray for our enemies. And some people would say, yes, I will pray for my enemies. I will pray they have no job, and I will pray they have no house, and I will pray so forth and so on. But that's not what Jesus was saying here. There's a difference between praying for and praying against. All of them should be prayed for. We should pray against the enemy. We should pray for our enemies. Does that make sense? Let me back this up a little more. Um, We have one enemy, just one. There's only one enemy we have. People may wrong us. But they're not our enemies. We have one enemy. Um, in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Your enemy is prowling around like a lion ready to devour you, right? Um, the word that's used in the original language is called, it's, it, I can't pronounce it, but it translates adversary, okay? Um, you have an adversary, someone who's set against you. The, um, the meaning of this word adversary is a courtroom term. It's, um, it's like... The devil is the prosecuting attorney, and he is going to bring every charge he can against you consistently, bringing things against you in the courtroom, all kinds of accusations. He's set his face against you. He wants to make sure that the charges stick, that they're binding, that they're permanent against you. You have an adversary who prowls around like a lion is what scripture says. You have one who seeks to do wrong by you. And then in Matthew 13, it says, you have an enemy uh, that seeks to do harm to you. Matthew 13, 38 through 40 talks about this. Um, The word here is translated enemy. Same concept. You have an adversary and you have an enemy. Same guy. The adversary is in the courtroom bringing charges against you. The enemy is the, um, the guy who plays dirty. He might bring charges against you in the courtroom, but behind the scenes, he's playing really dirty with you. The translation of this word, the, um, the understanding in the original language, is that this enemy is motivated by deep hatred for you. He has an irreconcilable hostility towards you. He is resolved at the very deepest core of his being to do you harm. That's your enemy. You have but one of those. And in Scripture, he's given many names. Um, The destroyer in Revelation. God of this world in 2 Corinthians. The accuser in Revelation. The great dragon in Revelation. The adversary, 1 Peter 5, 8. Lawless one, 2 Thessalonians. Liar, John 8. Beelzebub, Matthew 12. Murderer, John 8. Deceiver, Revelation 12. Prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2, 2, which basically means this. That's a confusing name. It basically means his kingdom is the air. Like, that's just, there's no substance to that. He doesn't have any power. He's just kind of boxing it air. He's got nothing. He's the prince of the power of the air. The devil in Luke 4, ruler of this world, John 12. Enemy, Matthew 13. Satan, Acts 26. Evil one, Matthew 13. Serpent, Revelation 12. Father of lies, John 8. Tempter, 1 Thessalonians Three. It's just a snapshot of our enemy, our singular enemy, the one who has set his whole being against you and your relationship with God. He wants to do everything he can in all of his power and all of his authority, which is relatively limited. He wants to do everything that he can to pull you apart from God, 
to pull you apart from fellowship with God's people, to separate you so that you don't pray boldly and persistently. Satan doesn't mind when Christians come to church and sit in the pews. Satan doesn't mind that. Because anyone can come to church and sit in a pew. Satan really is bothered when a Christian starts praying. Really is bothered when a Christian starts serving. Really is bothered when a Christian starts saying, that behavior doesn't glorify God and I'm not going to do it anymore. That's when Satan gets really bothered. And that's when Satan says, now I've got to step in. Now I've got to really mess with them. Now I've got to bring charges. Now I've got to do whatever I can to cause this person to stumble, to fall, to separate. We have one enemy. We need to know a few things about our enemy, though. He's the enemy of our souls. He wants nothing more than to bring death to your soul. Nothing more than that. But the enemy of our souls is not equal to God. So we need to dispel this rumor that he has perpetrated in culture. Satan and God are not equal. Okay? Satan is not all-knowing. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not in all places at all times. He is a created angel designed to worship God, but he fell. He declared war on God and took one-third of the heavenly host in rebellion against God. Um, Consequently, because he's a created angelic being, um, he is not all places at all times. He is not all-knowing. He cannot read your mind like God knows your heart. Satan cannot do these things. His knowledge, presence, and power are limited. And that's good news, right? And that is just great, that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and Satan is just a little infinite, you know, speck. God cast Satan out with the one-third that uh, rebelled against God, and now Satan takes pride in causing mankind, that's you and me, um, created to be God's image bearers, he takes pride to cause us to fall. He wants us to do the same thing he did and say, I don't need God. I'm better than God. I know better for my own life. I know better for the life of my family. I know better for the people around me. I, 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 I. But in scripture, it says that Satan said, I will ascend. I will sit on the throne. I will. And there's pride in that. And he fell because of that. And now he wants us to partake in that with him. The enemy of our souls has one desire to destroy us, to destroy our witness, to destroy our relationship with God. In Revelation 17, 14, it says that he lives to make war on the lamb. So we have this picture of this great beast, this devil that we see in Revelation, and this lamb. And the beast wants to make war on the lamb. But the lamb is more powerful than the beast. In Matthew 13, 38 through 40, It says, maybe I'll just read this because I've referenced it several times now. I might as well just read it for you. It's good to read the scriptures, isn't it? Matthew 13. There we go. Matthew 13, 38 through 40 says this. The field is the world and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. Well, Jesus is talking pretty harsh judgment here. There's weeds and there's good things. Um, Who sows the weeds? The devil. Um, Who who plants the evilness in the world and in the hearts of mankind? 
the adversary does. He wants to pull people apart from God. He does it in three ways. Um, he does it, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the things, that, the tools that Satan uses, our enemy uses against us. The world would be this. It would be um, the organized system of um, opposition and rebellion against God, corporately, flesh together, the corporate flesh of the world, and then the structures that it produces. So as a fallen race, as a fallen nation of people, um, we are corporate together in our sin. Therefore, a grouping of people, I used to, this is a bad analogy, in youth group, um, we would have, you know, 30 or 40 junior high students come together, and when they were mostly boys, no good would come of that. Um, we called it group stupid. Um, you put that many junior high boys in a room together, something is going to get broken, and it's it, inevitable. Something will break. Um, it might be a person. It might be an object. But you individually, one-on-one, -on -one, they're great. They're sweet little darlings. You can have great conversations together, corporately. They encourage one another to do things they shouldn't do, and then they enjoy it, uh, right? So that's the world. That's the picture of what we have. Corporately together, our flesh encourages one another to do things we shouldn't do. Um, it, it, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, these are things that are corporate in the world. Scripture tells us to do this, not love the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. We're not to let it shape our values. We are not to determine our values. By the way, the world determines values. And we are to live through Jesus to the world. We have been crucified with Christ and raised with him. Therefore, we live differently because our home is in heaven, not here. We're just temporary here. So that's the world. Satan uses the world, the corporate thing here. He also uses the individuals, the flesh that we each have individually. So now zoom down from the corporate view to you. This is where Satan gets a hold of your heart, the flesh. Your capacity and disposition to put your own self-interests above the interests of God. This is your will versus God's will for your life. It's an internal resistance to do what God wants you to do. It's an internal resistance to obey. You can't make me. I don't want to. You ever seen a toddler do that? I'm not gonna. Just saw Addie do that the other day. Um, and uh, and it's, it's that... It's that little part in your heart that says, I'm not going to. I'll hold my breath until I get my way. And that's the flesh in us. We say, no, I'm not going to do it that way. You can't make me. But what you need to know is that's the adversary at work in your life saying, I want to separate you from God. I want to separate you from the purpose that God has for you and the will that God has for your life. We need to recognize this, that we are no longer under flesh and the bondage that that covers. We've been set free. The sun has set you free, then you are free indeed, right? We're supposed to walk in conscious submission to the Holy Spirit, listening to him, praying, and obeying. That's the important part. And we're to put to death those sinful desires like Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness, and he said, get away from me. I don't, I don't do what you do. I do what God wants me to do. We're supposed to do that. The last thing that the devil does, the enemy of our souls, is he persecutes us. This is the part where people tend to shy away from saying things like um, oppression and torment. But it happens, and we need to be honest about it, because Satan doesn't want us to talk about the ways that he works. 
But in reality, Satan does pull punches sometimes. Um, with pride, Satan tempts us to join him in arrogance and self-sufficiency apart from God's grace. And if we yield ourselves to pride, then we boastfully think of ourselves as higher than God, and God is lowly beneath us. Satan can also tempt us with fear, that we revere God in, or in, the devil in fear more than we revere God in fear. And there's two different kinds of fear there. There's fear because I don't know what the adversary is going to do to me. I'm scared of him, like the boogeyman under the bed kind of thing, you know? Or then there's the fear of God. The word is yare, and it means a holy reverence. Uh, I'm not scared he's going to smite me, but I just, I want to please him so much that I serve him with all that I am. Two different kinds of fear. Which one do you submit to? Because they respond differently in your lives. Whatever the tactics that the adversary uses with you, the ultimate goal is that you would live a compromised and fruitless life that's filled with heresy and sin. That's what the adversary wants for you. And he does it through the world, and he does it through your own flesh, and sometimes he does it through things that we would call demonic. And I'm just going to list a few things, things like sexual sin, false religion, false teaching, false Jesuses, bitterness, foolishness, drunkenness, gossip, busybodying, lies, and idolatry. These are things that the adversary uses. These are demonic tools that he speaks into you because he's the father of lies. And so when you partake in these things, you're partaking in the adversary's will for your life. Then he does things that are considered extraordinary. Torment. You hear stories in third world countries of people being possessed. You read stories of that in scripture, but I tell you it's not just in third world countries. The devil likes to mess with Christians here in the United States too. Physical injury. It's in scripture. Satan likes to do that. False miracles. Accusation. Here's a good one. I'm sure we've all experienced this. You ever... Um, just heard that voice in the back of your head, you're not good enough. You know, you did that sin that one time, God can't use you. You failed. You're not, you're not capable. God doesn't love you. I'll tell you, that's not the voice of God. That's the voice of the adversary. And he's speaking lies into your heart and your mind. He also brings about death through an overabundance of drinking or recklessness or stupid decisions or abuse of different substances or weapons, murder and suicide because you're so lost in despair that you have no hope. False spirits. These are things that the adversary does because he is our adversary in the courtroom with God. He's saying, look at all the things that this person did. Surely they don't meet your standard, God. Let me have my way with them. And then as our enemy when he gets his way with us, man, he wants to have his way with us. He wants to knock us down and drag us out. Isn't this uplifting? Isn't this why you came to church this morning? <laughs> to hear things like, you have a great enemy who set his heart and mind and soul against you so that he can drag you down to the pits of hell. That's our enemy. That's the, woohoo! I'm so glad that the sermon is not over, right? The sermon is not over. Because we live in a world, though, that is just... You've seen the news, right, this week? What did we read about the devil sowing seeds, wickedness among mankind? This week, <clears throat> uh, April whatever to the 19th, whatever this week was, 
Yeah, it was Boston. That was horrible, right? Tragedy. Terrible stories you hear from that. West Texas, right? Terrible story there. China. Earthquake, like close to 200 dead, last I heard. Um, and then there's, in this week, in a different year, this was the anniversary week for a few other things. You guys aware of this? Anniversary week of Columbine this past week. Anniversary week of the Virginia Tech shootings this past week. Anniversary week of the Oklahoma City bombing. Anniversary week of the Branch Davidian massacre. A lot of stuff happened this past week over the course of history. A lot of seeds of evil and hatred and despair and all kinds of stuff have been sowed by the adversary in this world. And when we look around and we read the newspapers and we um, watch the news, I cannot tell you the last time I heard something encouraging, truly encouraging, on the news. I distinctly remember when I was a child watching the news. I used to watch it all the time, and it was usually tame kinds of stories. A cat gets stuck in a tree kind of thing. You know, nothing terrible. But I distinctly remember it was something clicked in my brain, and it, it made it permanent. The day I watched the news and I heard about a tragedy. I don't remember the tragedy. I just remember the images uh, of the police and the ambulances and the the body that was on the ground, and I don't remember what the tragedy was. I don't know if it, it was probably just a local one where we were. Um, but I remember going, well, that's different. Something changed. Um, and even in my little seven-year-old mind, I realized, well, that's not what I'm used to hearing. I'm used to hearing good things on the news. Something changed in the world and in my mindset there. Um, and now we look at the news, and it's all bad. It's all, it's all horrible tragedies. Um, there's a lot that goes on in this world and we need to understand that bombings happen and suicides and murders and all this stuff because the adversary is at work but not king over this world. And there's a difference between the enemy who works out those things and the people who are captive to that enemy. And we have to separate this in our mind because we pray against the enemy. We pray that all the power is taken away from him, that he is bound forever in eternity with all of his works and effects. For the people that do wrong in this world, they're just taken captive and they don't know any better. We pray for those people. Um, we were once captive to the enemy. We remember back in our life at one point there was a time we were captive to the enemy. We might not have made the news for our actions, um, but we made the news in heaven for our actions. Um, but God set us free. In Colossians 2, 13 through 15... It says this, you were once dead in your trespasses, in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made you alive together with him, and he forgave you all of your sins, and he canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. Now the devil has nothing over you in the courtroom, by the way. He canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set it aside and he nailed it to the cross, and then at the cross he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and put them to open shame. He triumphed over the enemy of our souls. He has no power over us in Christ. That's good news, right? Right. That's an amen part in your sermon. That's good news, right? Okay. Just checking. Um, so, because we have received this forgiveness, because we have been transferred from um, captivity in sin to the adversary to freedom in life in Christ, 
we are then called to live and act a certain way, to put aside those things that have enslaved us in the past and to pray for those people and give forgiveness to those people who have done wrong by us and to the world. And that's really hard when you look at things like Branch Davidian, Oklahoma, Boston, and you think, that person is so evil that they would kill people just because. But the truth of the matter is they need Jesus too. Christ died for them too. And I don't want them to die without having had a chance to receive the gospel. That's the heart that Jesus had for us. I don't want them to die until they've had a chance to love me and receive forgiveness from me. And that could all be said about us, right? So we pray for those who are captive by sin and evil. Jesus tells us in Luke 6 to pray for our enemies, to do good to them, to love them. Love is a demonstrated preference over and above myself for the well-being of others, even at great personal expense, by the help of God's Holy Spirit. Because God knows we're going to need the help to love people sometimes, right? (laughs) We're supposed to pray for people's salvation, to intercede boldly and persistently for them, to pray that their eyes would be open to the word of truth, to pray for the Spirit to soften their hearts, to pray for their forgiveness so that God would forgive them and that we or the people that they have wronged would forgive them, to pray that God sustains their life. Rather than praying like the psalmist prayed, Lord, wipe them off the face of the planet. We should pray, Lord, don't wipe them off the face of the planet until he's heard the gospel and received it. That's what we should be praying. And pray that you have a boldness to speak to those people that you call your enemies and invite them to church. Invite them to Jesus. Minister to them. Love them even when they are unlovable. This is how we serve God and not the enemy. The enemy would want us to set our cheek and our fist and our anger against the people who wrong us. Again, it separates us from God. And God says, run to your enemy. Give him a hug. Give him your coat. Give him your car. Love them, even though it costs you something. It's so much better than the alternative. But then we are to pray against the evil one, because Ephesians says, our battle isn't with flesh and blood. You wrong me, my battle's not with you. My battle's with the adversary who worked in your flesh. I wrong you. Your battle's not with me, but with the adversary who worked in my flesh. There needs to be repentance and reconciliation. Our battle is not with each other, but with the adversary, the one enemy that we have, the spiritual forces of wickedness that Ephesians talks about. We need to pray as believers, united in Christ and the Holy Spirit. We need to pray that the work of the enemy of our soul is stopped in the tracks, that he moves no further. Right? Right? Right that he moves no further, okay? This is the important stuff. We need to pray that the adversary is wiped off the face of the planet, that he no longer has a hold on people, that he doesn't get into the hearts of men, that they do terrible things. We need to pray that he's stopped and bound. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit to overcome the darkness. John chapter 1, great gospel, by the way, and a great opening chapter. Um, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by God, and nothing was not made by God, so forth and so on. But you get to this part. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
In him, Christ, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. This is the good news. Satan cannot overcome Christ. We have a victory. So, because we have a victory, we can pray as such. We're not asking for something God hasn't given us. We're just affirming the fact that God has given it to us. God, you've given us the victory over evil and the adversary and temptation in our own life, evil in the world, people who are lost. You've already claimed them. You've already bought them. You've already paid for them. Let's do something about it, Jesus. That's what we should be praying. We should pray that um, the servants of the enemy that move about, the one-third that he took with him, that move about in the world and tempt people and do Satan's bidding, we should pray that they get wiped off the face of the planet, bound and sent to the pits of hell where they belong, right? We should pray that God's will would be done in this city, that the oppression that sits on this city would be lifted and God's light would shine in here because I'll tell you what, 12,900 people in our borough don't go to church. 1,100 people do. Try and tell me that's not the adversary separating this city from God. He is working something out. 292 average yearly deaths. That's a lot, right? Um, Twelve of them happen to be suicides. A number four and a half times larger than it was seven years ago. The adversary wants to take this city as his own. But I'll tell you what. Scripture says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell can't overcome it, right? Well, we're built on a rock, are we not? So I take that verse very literally. On this rock, Christ will build his church. Satan can't overcome it. This city should belong to Jesus. And we have an obligation to pray boldly and persistently for the people who are lost to pray boldly and persistently that we would follow God's will for our life and that God's will would be done in this city and to pray boldly and persistently against the works of the adversary in our lives, the lives of our family, the life of this church, the life of this city. Put up a hedge of protection, right? Make the hedge as large as you want. Make it as out of whatever you want, okay? A hedge of protection around this city because... These are battlefield prayers because we are in a battle, right? A battle not against each other, a battle against the enemy. And so we have a king who leads the battle. This is good news. We have a king who um, says, listen, I've already, I've already kicked the devil in the tail. Now I just want you to come along and sweep him out with me. We get to pray things like this, praying God's truth. We get to declare the blood of Christ over all circumstances. At the cross, everything changed. Up to the point in the cross before Jesus died, the devil had power in the world. Jesus died on the cross, disarmed the devil. No longer does he have power, only that which we give him in our lives. He can't run our lives anymore. So we can pray things like this. Thank you, God, for freeing me from the grips of the devil. I am free in you. I will do as you will. We can pray things like... Um, Protection and authority in Luke 10. Luke 10 talks about how Jesus gives us protection from the adversary. He can't hurt us. Martin Luther, one of my favorite old dead guys. Um, he's an old dead guy. Um, he's one of my favorites. Um, he, in his journal, uh, 
you know, you know, he did the 95 Thesis, reformed the church. Okay, he did some great works. Well, the devil didn't want him to do that. The devil didn't want him to work on reforming the church to be more like Christ. He was sleeping in his bed one night, and he woke up, and he counts this in his journal, and he said he saw the devil at the foot of his bed. He looked at the devil, and he said, oh, it's you. He rolled over and went back to bed. Right? I like that. That's great, because the devil has no power over me when I'm in Christ. Christ gives me all the protection and all the authority because God gave authority to Christ. Christ used that authority and then said, now the authority is yours. Now you have the authority to say, flee, devil. You've got nothing on me, and I won't let you have my family, and I won't let you have this city. We have that authority in Christ. We have position in Christ. We are in Christ. We are not in the devil. This is something we need to remember. We are in Christ, bought and paid for with a price. We're not in the devil anymore. And that verse in, in Colossians, that he has given us the victory. That he has given us a great victory in Christ. Now all that the enemy of our souls has against us is bluffing. All he can say is, you did that sin, and I can say, yeah, but God forgave me. He loves me, and I'm his son. You got nothing on me, Satan. That's the good news. In Christ, enemy is nothing. In Christ, there is no obstacle too great. In Christ, 12,900 people can come to know Jesus. They can be freed from the grip of the enemy, but it means that we need to pray aggressively. It means that we, as believers in Christ, need to, A, be right with Christ. We need to keep a short list of sins. When we sin, repent. Sin, repent. Sin, repent. Don't keep that debt length long, because the devil will get a foothold. Keep a short account. Sin, you repent. You sin, you repent. That's good, okay? You pray a lot for all things, all times. Pray without ceasing. Pray aggressively for people to be saved. Pray aggressively that you would do God's will. Pray aggressively that this whole city would be freed from the grips of the adversary. Now, he will answer these prayers. You want how I know? He says, I don't desire that any should perish. Which means he's got his heart set for 12,900 people. He's got his heart set for us. And we'll just take hold of that promise this morning and we'll run with it. That's the greatest promise we could ever have, right? Doesn't matter what comes. Nothing is bigger than God. No obstacle, no circumstance, no temptation, no terror that flies in the night, Psalm 91 says. But God raises us above that in his strength only, not in our strength. Our strength, devil uses that against us. God's strength, possibilities, limitless. We need to pray aggressively. And so with that, we'll close with an aggressive prayer. And then we'll worship and we'll enjoy. Father, um, Lord, you are a great king. And when we pray aggressively to you, Father, um, we don't pray aggressively to you. We just pray aggressively with you because you, you are an aggressive king. You came into this world and said, no more. I won't tolerate what's going on in here with my children. I will deal with this once and for all. I'll die on the cross for the sins for all people. This is as aggressive as it possibly can get. I will purchase everyone back from the adversary. Give everyone a chance. And Lord, that's what you did. You gave everyone grace. 
Grace that is greater than sin. Grace that is greater than anything. And everyone is covered by that grace. We just need to choose to live in it. Father, this morning, I pray that you would be our great warrior king in our own heart, building in us this passion that is holy for the people in our city, that we would love them, that we would serve them, that we would witness to them, and that we would speak to them of your grace and mercy and compassion. And that, Lord, you would open their eyes to the works of the adversary in their life, that they might see just the death spiral that they are on. And, Father, I pray that you would reach in and pull them out. Lord, I I pray that you would save this city. It's not too big to ask. You can do it. I know you can. You've saved just as many in several accounts in Scripture at one time. I know you can save this city. But I know you want us to work for you in this. So, Lord, I pray that as we go about this city, ministering and loving and worshiping and leading people to you, Lord, that you would give us protection from the adversary. You just prevent him from speaking lies into our heart. Would you close our ears to his voice? Would you protect our family? Would you protect our, our bodies? Would you protect our minds? Would you protect our hearts? Would you protect this church? Would you set us apart and sanctify us for your purposes, Father? We want this. We really do. And so we say, Lord, wherever you go, we'll go. Whatever you say, we'll say. Whatever you want us to do, we'll do. Because we know you're already doing it. We just want to jump in. We're going to be aggressive with you and for you in the name of Jesus. Amen. And here's the thing. The victory has already been brought. It is our victory. Christ has given it to us. Therefore, when we walk from here, we don't walk as one that is downcast. We don't walk as one that has given power to the devil. We walk as one with our head held high because Christ has purchased us and we walk with that freedom and victory, right? Amen. So go in victory and claim that wherever you go in the name of Jesus. Amen.